First Peter chapter 3 from verse 8. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is, it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand, with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. Let's go. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we uh, thank you that we can gather around your word, and uh, Lord, thank you that we can sit under it. And Lord, uh, we ask that you would speak to us through it and that you would teach us by it, that you would encourage our hearts, that you would grow our love for you and Lord, our obedience for you through the grace in the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen. Well, uh, this week I went to the hospital uh, I hate, I actually hate hospitals, hey, I just as I was walking through the hospital, I thought, oh gosh, this is just an awful place. But anyway, I was walking, <laughs> for all the people who work in hospitals, I went to the hospital to get my first dose of the COVID vaccine. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't really like the thought of getting a needle shoved in my arm. I don't hate needles, like I'm not scared of them, but uh, I don't really look forward to them. Uh, but usually when we get a needle for whatever reason, whether it's a, uh, someone's injecting something or we're getting blood taken, we usually do it because there's a good outcome on the other end. Got the vaccination because I thought that was the right thing to do. And yet I also realised as I was going there that it was going to come at a cost. That is, someone's going to stick something into my arm and it may well hurt. And for the second dose, I may well get a little bit sick afterwards as well. Sometimes doing good comes at a cost. It brings suffering, but we do it because we know that the end result 
is worthwhile. And really that's what Peter is talking about in that passage that Hannah read for us just before. Uh, God has called us, he's encouraging us, he's commanding us to do good, he's calling us to be radical in how we do good, how we live for him in the world. But God also wants us to know that doing that might actually make our life harder rather than easier. And when it does make our lives harder, we need to be able to know how to respond to that. So that's what we're thinking about as we look at this passage this afternoon. Peter here is continuing with instructions that he's begun that we've looked at in previous weeks and he's been talking about what it means to live as a priest that's a bit of a weird thing to say but the bible says that we're all priests that is we're all people who've been set apart to serve god and we've been set apart to serve god wherever we are and we've seen that that means living for god in the ordinary relationships of life it's not being a serving god is not something that we do when we for an hour a week when we come to church but it's something that we do in our everyday relationships, in our relationship to the authorities, government, uh, in our relationship uh, in our workplaces, in our relationships in our family life. So he's talked about that. And now he goes on to think about what it means to live in the relationship in our church community and then also more broadly. And he begins here by talking about uh, what it means to live in the Christian community and he lists five things in verse 8 that he arranges very carefully. Now, Finn, there should be a slide that you can put up there, some dot points. Look at that. They say I'm not artistic, but look at that. <laughs> that is just amazing. Uh, <laughs> just top-notch. Uh, so, so there you go. There's, it shows you the structure. So you've got, it's what's uh, in biblical geekiness, it's called a chiasm. Anyway, but it just means that there's something in the middle, which is the most important, and then there's things bracketed around it, sort of moving out from there. So the first two things give us instructions about how to think. Uh, so like-mindedness and, and humility, or hum, being humble, uh, it's about how to think. Then how to feel inside that, uh, to be sympathetic, to be compassionate. And all of that is anchored then in brotherly love. So as I said, the, the first two terms tell us how to think. The first one, says we, Peter says, we are to be like-minded. So quite literally, we're to think the same. So the idea is not that we are to be robots, but as one Bible commentator has put it, divisions of outlook and opinion, natural enough in a diverse group of converts, should be reduced to a minimum. So... It's natural when you have a group of people who are completely different, it's natural that there will be lots of different views on things. But it, we need to work hard so that it's not like that. Because it's actually quite hard to live in relationship and live in community with people when we have radically different ideas about how things should work. Now that's problematic in our culture because... Individualism means that we value individual opinion very, very highly. So often we think uh, of individual opinion as, or our individual ideas as a kind of a badge of honour. So if I think differently from the group, then that's kind of my, my badge of honour. Uh, you know, I form my opinion on my own without reference to other people. 
But Peter says, the Bible says, no, actually, we ought to work really hard to share our view of the world, to be as much as possible like-minded. Peter is not saying that God wants us to agree, everyone to agree on what our favourite colour is uh, or what our favourite meal is or anything like that. He's probably thinking most of all of Christian truth and Christian doctrine. So we absolutely ought to agree on those core truths of the gospel. The atonement, that Jesus died for sins, that Jesus is God and man in one person. That salvation is through faith alone in Jesus. That we find out about that through the Bible alone. Those kinds of things. There ought to be absolute agreement on those things. But also, we shouldn't settle for just conviction on those, uh, agreement on those core convictions. We also need to work hard to agree, to find agreement as well on those secondary matters. So, We shouldn't be unnecessarily divisive on things that are secondary, but it's also important that we are not indifferent. It's actually good for us as a community to patiently work together toward a common understanding. Because often when we don't, then over time those differences can drive us apart if we're not careful. That, of course, finding that common understanding can be very, very hard work. It can take an enormous amount of patience and perseverance and gentleness, but ultimately it's important that we pursue that. As Christians, we can become used to disagreeing uh, on secondary things. So we might disagree, for example, on the role of men and women in the church and family, or we might disagree on baptism or about the end times, or things like that. Uh, and while it's understandable that we sort of learn to live with those things, and while that is good at one level, it's also not ideal. There's a sense in which we ought to pursue like-mindedness, and we ought to pursue the truth together. We ought to work together to be mastered by the Scriptures. So that's the first thing. We, we ought to strive for that like-mindedness. Uh, even if it takes uh, great patience uh, and perseverance. But tied with that is like-mindedness, sorry, tied with like-mindedness is humility. So in order to pursue like-mindedness, we need to be humble. Now, humility in the first place means that we don't consider ourselves more valuable than others or more important than others. So Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that we ought to consider the needs of others and others themselves as more important than, than us and our needs. We ought to place those things above our own needs. But it's also important, humility is also important when it comes to pursuing like-mindedness in biblical truth and biblical understanding. Uh, And that's because pride can get in the way, obviously, of pursuing the truth. Uh, And pride can exhibit itself in two ways. One way I think we probably expect and another way I think that we can be quite culturally blind to. There's a kind of pride in the Australian context and in the world context, but particularly in Australian culture, that is very subtle, I think. Well, it's subtle to us, uh, but it's also very damaging and very divisive 
uh, and we need to own up to it and we need actually, I think, to work hard against it because it can be very problematic. So uh, to give an example, uh, my sister sent me, my sister's a scientist, she sent me a comic. Finn, do you want to put up the the comic? Uh, The other day. Uh, So my sister's been studying, uh, uh, sorry, has been in research for 20 or something ridiculous years. She has a PhD and all kinds of other things. Uh, And she sent this comic says, honey, come look, I found some information all the world's top scientists and doctors missed. And it's picking up on this idea uh, that is very common in our society. That is that all information is equally accessible to all people, which sounds really humble and sort of egalitarian, but is actually a form of pride that is quite destructive. So let me give you an example to illustrate the situation. I play trombone, which is just a really glamorous thing to do. Um, I've been playing trombone for 30 years. Can you believe that? Or 29, I'm not quite sure. Something like that, for 29 or 30 years. So I've been playing for a very long time. I even have... I says, maybe even Peter has this as well. I have a diploma of musical performance or something from the University of Tasmania that I did almost nothing for. Uh, I played in a number of different orchestras and things over my life. In other words, you know, I've been playing trombone and know a, a bit about how to play the trombone. A few years ago, I played in a quartet. And the guy who ran the quartet was a guy some of you might know whose name is Monty. Now, Monty hasn't been playing the trombone for 30 years. He's been playing the trombone for about 300 years or something like that. Uh, and he's, been, he's spent his life as a musical educator. And while we were playing in that quartet, Monty would often say things like this, Coral, he's an American, Coral, can you hear the flower opening? No, <laughs> he did say that one time. Uh, he would say, that's how you have to play it. You know, Carl, I want you to play it like this. The music is calling for us to play, play it like this. Now, there's a kind of response to that coming from me that could have been proud, and that would have been for me to say, Monty, you've got no idea what you're talking about. Why on earth should I listen to you? I've been playing trombone for 30 years. Monty, I have a diploma in musical performance. A diploma? That is a kind of a pride Now, pride from his perspective would have been to say, Carl, there's nothing valuable that you can contribute to this, nothing valuable that you can say here that I will listen to. You haven't haven't been in musical education, Carl, what can you possibly say? So there's a pride from his perspective, but there's also this pride that comes up from the bottom as well, that as Australians in particular, we're quite blind to, but is actually just as insidious as the other one. Uh, that latter pride, the Australian pride, you might like to call it, or reverse pride, I, I think of it as, is actually destroying cultural institutions. Uh, it's destroying all kinds of authority structures in our society. And it will, uh, unchecked, destroy the church as well, I think. If we're not, I, I don't mean the branch, but I just mean the church in general. If we are to pursue this like-mindedness, we need to cultivate both those kinds of humility. The Monty humility, if you like, and the the Carl humility, for want of a better term. We need to be 
willing not to look down on, on others, but also be willing to accept uh, that not, information is not accessible to all in an equal way. So that's the outer two things uh, of that chiasm. Then inside that, there's, uh, Peter talks about how we ought to feel. First, he says we should be thim- sympathetic. Uh, and, and at the risk of um, overreading a, a Greek word, uh, that, that term there means something like, uh, so it's made up of two parts, pathos, uh, which refers to feelings and emotions and so on, and another prefix that talks about sharing things together. So in a way, it's about, having, about feeling things together. Uh, when, when others weep and are hurt, we ought to weep. When those in the church are hurt, we, we ought to weep with them. When they rejoice, we ought to rejoice with them. Often we find that quite hard. Often when someone else is hurt, we, our natural response might, to be, might be to be indifferent. Think, oh, you know, intellectually we think, well, that's bad for them, but we don't really feel the pain with them. Or alternatively, they succeed and rather than feeling the joy with them, we might resent it. But God says to us, no, we ought to share their excitement and share their sorrows. We ought to be sympathetic. We're also to be compassionate. I don't think compassionate is such a a great term to use there. When we think of compassion, we think of feeling sorry for someone who's hurt, but it's a bigger concept than that. The word means something more like tender-hearted or something like that. We where to care for others, where to care about them, not just when they're sad, but just to have a general disposition of concern and tenderness toward each other. Where to care about how each other's life is going. We're not just to agree on the same things. It's no good if we just agree on the same things if we don't actually then care about each other as well. We need to Pursue right understanding and truth under the scriptures, but also pursue the right attitude towards each other. And the foundation of those things, in the middle of that chiasm thing, is brotherly love. That is, pursuing agreement, being humble, uh, being sympathetic, being tender-hearted. All those things flow out of the love, the brotherly love that we have for those in the church, those who've been purchased by the blood of Christ, those who've been adopted into the family of God through the Holy Spirit, those whom Christ spilled his blood for, our love for those people grounds and establishes uh, that shared thinking and shared feeling. So Peter tells us how to live in the Christian community. Then he moves on from that to think about the world more broadly, and of course it still has an application to the church He says next, don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult. I think if we're honest with ourselves, probably most often, our inclination is to do exactly that, to repay an insult with an insult. So someone says something mean and we say something mean back. They cut us off at the lights, we cut them off at the next set of traffic lights. Uh... They say that we're fat or ugly, and we say, no, you're fat, you're ugly. You know, when I was at school, we used to go, Mira, Mira, did anyone else do that? Mira, it was like, back at ya. 
Clearly not everyone did that. It's a long time ago. It's so easy for us to do, though, isn't it? It's tit for tat and it spirals more and more out of control. God says, don't do that. Repay evil with blessing. So they say, you're ugly. And you say, you're such a great friend to me. No, but you say, you, 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 you are polite to them. You're kind to them. They steal from you. Jesus says, they steal your jumper. You give them your coat as well. They hate you. You love them. They seek division. You seek peace. In all those ways, God says we live for him wherever we are. We serve him as his people wherever we are. Why do we do those things? Peter says in verse 12, Because the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Peter says when we live like this, God is attentive to us and to our prayers. Peter's not saying that we're saved we're getting good with God by living in this kind of way no he said earlier in the book we're saved by the blood of Jesus by trusting in Jesus Christ by being born again through the spirit who comes through Jesus he's not talking about salvation but there is a sense in which the quality of our life with God the relationship with that with God is affected by how we live so God delights in us when we live for him And God is grieved uh, when we sin against him. That doesn't stop us being children of God. That can't be taken away. That's sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. But the quality, the experience of our relationship with God is affected by the way that we live. How we live can affect our joy, our prayer life, our usefulness to God and our experience of God in daily life. So Peter lays out this pattern uh, of the Christian life, where to uh, be like-minded, where to be humble, where to be sympathetic, compassionate, where to live out of brotherly love, where to uh, repay insults with kindness. And then he goes on to talk about how people respond to that. And he says, look, if you live like that, the chances are people will probably treat you well. You know, if you're nice to people, they'll be nice back. If you're nice to your neighbours, it's probably likely that your neighbours will be nice back. If you're evil, people will probably treat you badly. Most of the time, that's how it's going to work out. But he says, it's not always going to work out like that. Sometimes, maybe living a godly life will actually get up the nose of the people around you and... They will hate you because of it and you'll be persecuted and mistreated because of it. And so then in the rest of this section that we read, he goes on to to deal with or give two pieces of advice for how we deal with that. The first piece of advice comes in verses 14 to 16. He says this, Don't fear their threats. Don't be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. So how do we respond when we're mistreated in seeking to live for God? Well, we're not to be afraid. We're not to be frightened. Instead, we're to revere Christ as Lord. That is, 
we're to remember that Jesus is the king. Jesus is in control. And we're also to be prepared. What, what are we to be prepared for? We're prepared, we need to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have. So here evangelism is the response to persecution. In other words, the answer that we're supposed to be prepared to give is why are you willing to suffer like this in service to God? Why would you do that? You might know the story of the second century Christian martyr Polycarp. Uh, in his old age, he was brought into the arena and he was stood before the tribunal and he was asked to deny Jesus. And he stood there and he said famous words, you might have heard them before, 86 years I've served him and he never once wronged me. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? He was persecuted for doing good and he gave a defence of why he did that. It wasn't a long and complicated philosophical argument. He was just answering the question, Polycarp, why are you willing to suffer for the sake of Christ? Because he's the king of the universe and he's never let me down. That's the kind of defence that God is calling us to give. After Polycarp gave that defence, they stacked up the wood and they set him alight. God isn't calling us to be prepared with a long explanation of the gospel or a long philosophical argument, but just to express our reason for confidence to suffer for serving Christ. So that's the first piece of advice Peter says. When you suffer for doing good, don't be afraid. Remember Christ is king. Be prepared to give an answer. And the second piece of advice he gives is remember your salvation in Jesus. Remember your salvation in Jesus. In the last part of the chapter, in verse 18 to 22, he explains this hope that we have of ultimate rescue. So don't be afraid of suffering for doing good, he's saying, because ultimately you know that it's going to work out. Ultimately you know you're going to be rescued. Now, it needs to be said that these verses are probably some of the trickiest verses in the whole of the New Testament. But we'll try and just go through them quickly and uh, see what they're saying. So in verse 18, Peter says that we shouldn't be afraid of suffering for doing good because that's what Jesus did. Jesus suffered. But more than that, Jesus' suffering brought us to God. Uh, because although he was put to death in the body, he was made alive in the spirit. So the implication is that because of what Christ has experienced on our behalf, we shouldn't be afraid of persecution. So it's not simply that we shouldn't be afraid of persecution because Jesus suffered. You know, that would be, that's a great encouragement, isn't it? When someone else experiences the same thing, that's a great encouragement. Jesus suffered, therefore we should be encouraged. That's not what Peter's saying. He's saying Jesus suffered and he was killed and he triumphed because he rose from the dead. 
So it's great that people can experience the same things and feel what we feel. Jesus can certainly do that, but he's also won the victory. He died, he was persecuted, and yet has been raised to life. And if we're with him, then we share in his victory. Verse 19 and 20 then says, After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Now those are the trickiest verses in this whole thing, probably some of the trickiest verses in the whole New Testament. And the question is, where did Jesus go? Who did he speak to? And what did he say? Where did he go? Who did he speak to? And what did he say? Well, first of all, where did he go? Sometimes this verse has been mistakenly misunderstood to mean that Jesus descended into hell and proclaimed something to the people who were in hell. So that misunderstanding was incorrectly absorbed into what we call the Apostles' Creed, which is not part of the Bible, but was written in the centuries after the New Testament. And that famously says that Jesus descended into hell. The Bible doesn't teach that. This verse was misunderstood to mean that. Jesus suffered the agonies of hell, the punishment of God against our sin. But he didn't descend to hell. Instead, he went to be with the Father, as he says to the thief on the cross next to him, today I will be with you in paradise. So where did he go? Well, verse 22 gives us the clue where Jesus went. It says, who, that is Jesus, has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities and powers in submission to him. So the same term is used in that verse, in verse 22, as is used in verse 19 to talk about Jesus going. Or he went or he, he, he has gone into, it's the same term. But in verse 22, it's much clearer where Jesus has gone and the purpose for which he has gone. So in verse 22, where he has gone is into heaven to be seated at the Father's right hand and the purpose for which he has gone is so that his victory over the powers of darkness, uh, the angels, authorities and powers, the evil angels, authorities and powers, his victory over them might be proclaimed. So in Verse 18, you have this pattern of death followed by resurrection, followed by ascension. And Jesus has ascended into the heaven to take up his rightful rule over his enemies and for that to be proclamation to be made. Jesus is the king. Jesus has won. That's the point. Why is Peter telling us this? He's telling us this, remember, because he doesn't want us to be afraid of persecution. Why should we not be afraid of persecution? Because Jesus has died, suffered for doing good, triumphed over death, and now reigns over all his enemies. We don't need to be afraid. We don't need to be afraid of persecution, of suffering for doing good, because if we're with Jesus, then we win. And that's the point, really, of the last illustration in this section, which is the, the reference to Noah. The thing about Noah is that Noah was chosen by God 
to be saved through the waters of the flood in the ark. But the thing is, if you were one of Noah's children or family, you got to go along as well. Noah was the man, but all the people who were linked up with Noah got saved as well. And Peter's saying the same thing here. Jesus is the new Noah, if you like. And it's by being linked up with him and connected up with him through faith in him that we're saved from the judgment and the wrath of God and saved indeed from the suffering uh, and the persecution that comes against those like Noah who faithfully serve God in this world. Peter refers to baptism and really he's just what he's saying there is that baptism is a kind of a sign of that, that if we appeal to God uh, and through Christ, we're caught up with him, we're linked up with him, and in the same way that the people in Noah's day were saved from judgment, so too we might be saved through Christ. Baptism doesn't do that, but it's a sign, it's a symbol of that, and it's a prayer for God to do that. But the point is this. The point is, don't be afraid to live for God in this world. Why not? So often we're afraid of living for God and the cost. It might bring suffering, it might bring hardship. We're afraid just to share the gospel with people. John Piper said, afraid not of the raised fist, but of the raised eyebrow. But Peter says, God says, don't be afraid. Because Jesus has suffered and he's triumphed and he reigns. And if you're with him, if we're with him, then we don't have anything to be afraid of. Yes, we might suffer for doing good, but when Jesus wins, we'll win too. God wants us, he wants you, he wants me to live a life for him wherever we are in the Christian community, in our relationships and in the world, that might lead to suffering and persecution. But we don't need to be afraid because Jesus is on the throne, ruling over his enemies. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we, we thank you that uh, you've not only called us to a holy calling to be in relationship with you, to serve you in our life, but, Lord, you've given us the encouragement to do that, even if it costs us. And, Lord, we want to acknowledge that sometimes we are afraid of what it will cost us to follow you. Uh, Lord, afraid of what people might think about us or say about us or the way that they might treat us. Lord, uh, people can oppose us and that forces us to change the way that we live and Lord we ask that you would forgive us for that Lord uh, help us to trust in you and in the Lord Jesus Christ help us not to be afraid not to be frightened to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that we have and to remember that Jesus has not only suffered not only triumphed in his resurrection from the dead 
but he has also ascended and reigns over all his enemies. We pray that you help us to remember those things. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.